0: Resistance, Chapter 5, October 12, 1942, Podgotsky Ghetto, Krakow. While I was at Tarnow Ghetto, the decision was made for Akiva to leave Kolpolani Farm. The neighbors had noticed the number of people who came and went and were asking too many questions. Dangerous questions with answers that could send every single one of us to the losing end of a firing squad. We'd relocate inside Krakow's ghetto a place that had been sealed from the outside world for a year and a half. It was home to my parents now and would have been my home too had I not been sent away. One of our members offered us his empty apartment on Josephinska Street. The scouts snuck in through holes in the wall, talked ourselves in with fake papers, or joined the shift of workers returning to the ghetto at the end of a workday. Those who left were counted far more carefully than those who returned. I was one of the last to enter, because although I understood the need to be closer to our people, to work where we were needed most, I didn't want to go. I'd seen enough ghettos by now to know how difficult it was to live in them. No one laughed here, and smiles were fleeting. They spoke often of the past and rarely of the future. Bread, wagons, a source of life, came through occasionally, Uh but trucks to collect the dead were part of the daily routine. Oftentimes, the body could not be buried, so it was simply covered with newspapers, and soon the shock of seeing bodies left this way became commonplace. Death had become normal here, inevitable, and since there was nothing to fear from the normal, attempting to delay one's death seemed almost illogical, like resisting the urge to breathe. I'd visited my parents a few times since becoming a courier, but today was going to be different. My father sat cross-legged on their worn wooden floor and gestured that the small chair against the wall was for me. When I sat in it, he asked, what is the news from the outside world? You always seem to know. Everything I knew was awful. So instead I said, Grandmother Lidner as well, she asked me to say hello. The first part was true. The second was not. Tensions were already high in the home where my grandmother was staying. I couldn't make it worse by paying her a visit. She was kind without exception and baked a babka cake that made my mouth water just to think of it. But she was also fixed in her ways. Her Yiddish language, her Jewish proverbs that seemed relevant to every possible conversation. If the family who was hiding her was ever raided, my grandmother would have easily been identified as Jewish. I checked in on her as often as possible, but neither she nor my family ever knew I'd passed by. Are you well, Papa asked, hopefulness in his voice. You look good. You needn't to worry about yourselves, Papa. You need to worry about yourselves, Papa, not me. We're still your parents. His eyes creased. My little bird, of course we worry about you. I hadn't heard his nickname for me since I was small, and it was hard to hear it now. I only shook my head, stuffing my emotions down. I'm good, Papa. You can see that. Not always. He looked around for any signs that someone was listening to our conversation, but my mother was the only other one in the room, and she was staring out the window, barely aware that I'd come. Something had collapsed inside her when she lost her two younger children, like a part of her had died with Sarah and vanished with Yishkaf. Although we appeared to be alone, Papa lowered his voice. Sometimes you're here in the ghetto, sometimes you're not, so we worry. Mama mumbled my name, but remained looking out the window. From her view, she could see the entrance gate to the ghetto, one I sometimes used while smuggling. I wondered if she'd ever seen me come through it. I leaned in close to my father and withdrew two, billfolds, two bifolds from a pocket in my coat, which I passed to him. He unfolded one and then the other, and then looked at me, looked up at me, clearly confused. What are these? They look like. I shushed him with a whisper. They're identification papers, Polish papers for you and Mama. These aren't our names. How did I can get you and Mama out of the ghetto? I know a safe house near Krakow. He closed the bifolds. Those aren't our names, Kaya. That isn't our life. Just until the war is over, Papa, I can help you. Yitzchaf's coming back here to the ghetto, Mama said. We'll wait for him here. I turned to her. No, Mama, Yitz isn't. Papa placed his hand on my arm. This is where Yitzchaf will look for us when he comes back. If he was put on the trains like Sarah, then Yitzchaf wasn't coming back because the kids who were taken away on those trains never came back. Those trains carried passengers in only one direction ever, away from the ghettos, to an almost certain death. But now my father was whispering to my mother, telling her everything was all right, and I knew our conversation had to end here for her sake. Robbing her of hope would have been almost as cruel as the Nazis had been to rob her of her children. Papa stuffed the fake identification papers into his pocket. Your mother and I will talk about it later. Will you promise to look at what I gave you to really think about it? He nodded, and I hoped he meant it, "'that they would look at what surrounded them "'and realize that taking a risk out there "'was far better than the certainty of remaining here. "'I wanted to shake him and beg him to say yes. "'Then I would take care of the rest. "'I would take care of them. "'I stood to leave, but Papa gestured to their small half-room. "'You could stay here with us,' he said. "'I have a place nearby with friends. "'I tried not to see the hurt in my father's eyes when I spoke. "'I loved my parents more than anything.' Which was probably why visiting them had become so difficult. When where was the father of my childhood who always knew how to make everything all right? Where was the mother who sang to me, who sang me to sleep every night and was the sunshine in our home each morning? There was no Yeshav and no Sarah. Even I was nothing like I had been once before. I'd grown stronger, bolder, more proud of my identity than I'd ever been before, and I needed to be with others who felt the same way. Maybe Papa understood that. He never asked me to stay again. The easiest excuse was to tell myself that they couldn't know about the work I was doing and that my staying there would have endangered them. But mostly I stayed away because I knew the papers I'd just given my father would probably never come out of his pocket again, and I didn't know how to save people who were no longer cared to save themselves. Beyond that, I was drawn to the energy in the Josephinski apartment, our secrets, our goals. We had started as a handful of teenagers led by an amateur newspaper editor, his young wife, and a job counselor. Our leaders had become unlikely generals in our acts of resistance, and I was as willing a soldier as anyone on the front lines. We became an organization formidable enough to gain the respect of larger resistance movements in Warsaw, and we had begun discussing ways to get the Nazis' attention here in Krakow. "'How far are you willing to go?' a fellow scout named Reuben asked me one night. He was a couple years older than me, with slightly ravy hair and a dimple in one cheek when he smiled. Like me, he'd been sent away from Krakow by the Judenrat last year, though he'd lost all of his family soon after in an action on the streets. Also like me, he was eager to do anything he could for the resistance. Reuben had become one of my closest friends within Akiva, the person I always went to first for ideas or advice." How far, I grinned! I'll do whatever it takes to make them regretting coming to Poland. He was echoing the same thoughts our leaders were already debating. It was no longer enough to do the courier work or to respond defensively to Nazi aggression. The time had come to take a few bites of our own. Perhaps we were only fleas nipping at the heels of a giant. But if our actions stopped the giant from crushing everything within its path, even for a moment, then it was worth it. Despite our leader's lack of experience in the world, they were learning fast and passing on to us everything they could. Reuben compared it to being thrown into an ocean and being told to learn to swim. So we did. And we still are. Reuben showed me how to fire a gun. I taught him to lie. All of us learned about gren- gren- grenades, studied the routes of Nazi patrols through Krakow, and began to scavenge, buy or steal anything that helped us in our cause. Within weeks of our move to Josephinski Street, Dolik returned from a meeting with other resistance groups up north, announcing that from now on, Akiva would be divided into five cells of five. We were not asked for the names of people in any other cell, and especially not for the details of their missions. If we were ever captured, the less we knew, the better. My cell was assigned to begin raids on the German storehouses. Acquiring weapons and ammunition were the top priority, but medical supplies, money, and food would also be valuable. Reuben acted as the leader of ourselves simply because he was the oldest and took direct orders from Akivia's leadership. A younger boy named Jacob worked with us too. He was brilliant and willing to do anything asked of him, but since he'd only attended Jewish schools while growing up, he spoke very little Polish and no German, which limited his usefulness. Hanusia was brave and clever, though she lacked the specific look for a courier. Finally, Miriam was an experienced courier who taught me a lot over the past few months, but it was good to have her along. Where are we going first, I asked Ruben. He smiled over at me. How would you feel about taking a ride on a train? It should be loaded with supplies meant for the Germans. I grinned back at him. Perhaps with our help, it would arrive at its destination a little lighter than when it began.